0: Good morning, Grace Community. Morning. Awesome. Um my name's Sean. For those of you who may not know me, I'm on staff here at Grace. Um, I work with the youth and uh just I, I really do want to welcome again those of you who may be visiting us for the first time. Um, i I love this place and and we hope that you will be blessed by it uh, and and please uh after the service, feel free to talk to me or, or David or, or Pastor Brad or any of our elders. Um, we're just so thankful to have uh, you here visiting with us um, as we journey through Acts. Um, late in the 12th century, uh, Peter of Blois wrote to Reginald, Bishop of Bath, and this is what he said, However dogs may bark at me and pigs grunt, I shall always imitate the works of the ancients. These shall be my study. We are like dwarves standing on the shoulders of giants, by whose grace we see farther than they. Our study of the works of the ancients enables us to give fresh life to their finer ideas and rescue them from time's oblivion and man's neglect. Um, and I, I really, I really enjoy that, that quote, that, that thought. Um, I, I am a strange person, and I admit it. I love church history. I love history in general, but especially early church history. I find it uh, riveting. Um, and beyond that, I also see how immensely relevant it is to our culture today. Um, Just the other day I was having a conversation with David and we were talking about how we live in a culture where new is glorified and and lifted up above old. Uh, And and there's this mentality that if a book or or, or if a, a, a thought or if a movement is new, then it's good. And if it's old, then it's outdated and not so good. Uh, and it's really sad because we lose out on a lot of rich tradition, uh, especially when you consider church history. Uh, we fight a lot of battles that have already been fought against heresy and false doctrine. Uh, and we lose such a great witness, uh, such a great witness, and, and especially uh, the witness of the martyrs. Um, there's nothing more challenging and encouraging to me than to hear about the, the lives and the deaths of the martyrs. Uh, there, was, there was one church historian named Eusebius. He was a second century, no, sorry, a fourth century uh, church historian, and Eusebius wrote about uh, different martyrs, and, and he's kind of like the fox's book of martyrs, but, but much earlier. Uh, and he writes of one martyr in the first century whose name was Peter. Um, Peter was a Roman guard. And I want you to listen to these words. They're, they're painful. Um, but, but, but listen to how Eusebius uh, describes the martyrdom of Peter, the Roman guard. Eusebius writes uh, in this book, I shall describe the death that one of them met uh, at the hands of Nicodemia, Uh, the the emperor, and leave to my readers to infer from that case what happened in the others. In the city, being Rome, Nicodemus brought a certain man into a public place and commanded him to sacrifice to the emperor. When he refused, he was ordered to be stripped, hoisted up naked, and his whole body to be torn with loaded whips until he gave in and carried out the commands. When, in spite of his torment, he remained obstinate, they next mixed vinegar with salt and poured it over the lacerated parts of his body where the bones were already exposed. When he treated the agonies too with scorn, a lighted torch was then brought forward and, as if it were edible meat for the table, what was left of his body was consumed by fire, not all at once, for fear his release should come too soon, but a little at a time. And those who placed him on the pyre were not permitted to stop until after such treatment he should signify his readiness to obey. But he stuck immovably to his determination and was victorious in the midst of his torture, and he breathed his last. Eusebius also describes uh, the death of James, the brother of our Lord. To the scribes and Pharisees' dismay, James boldly testified that Christ himself sitteth in heaven at the right hand of the great power and shall come on the clouds of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees then said to themselves, We have not done well in procuring this testimony of Jesus, but let us go up and throw James down, that they all may be afraid and not believe in him. Uh, And accordingly, the scribes and Pharisees threw down the just man, being James, and began to stone him, for he was not killed by the fall. But he turned and kneeled down and said, I beseech thee, Lord God, our Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And while they were thus stoning him to death, one of the priests, the son of Rechab, the son of Rechabim, to whom testimony is borne by Jeremiah the prophet, began to cry aloud, saying, Cease what you're doing. The just man is praying for us. But one among them, one of the fullers, took a staff with which he was accustomed to wringing out the garments he dyed and hurled it at the head of James. And so was the martyrdom of the brother of our Lord. Uh, And then perhaps the first church historian whose account we're reading now, Luke, um, tells of Stephen, the first deacon and the first martyr. And Luke says, now when the Pharisees heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of heaven. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Um, And these are just three of many accounts of the ancients who, in the face of persecution, torment, death, stood strong. And later, in his apology, Tertullian, as Brad quoted last week, rightly said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church, which we now take for granted at times, was built on the suffering and the blood of the martyrs, and we are going to spend today looking at one of those martyrs. Uh, We're going to look at Stephen, the first martyr, Um, and we're going to see what lessons we can learn from Stephen's life and his death. Uh, One of two things can happen when you study church history, when you study the martyrs, when you study ancient figures, um, you can find yourself admiring the history and being amazed at the history of what happened, um, or you can be seeing this history and by the power of the Spirit be transformed, be changed, be moved, so moved by the lives of those that God has given us uh, that you live differently. And I, I pray uh, that that the latter is 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 the result so let's look at the life of stephen it's our scripture reading uh, stephen this this whole stephen story is something like 70 Uh, verses. We're not going to read all of them. Uh, In fact, throughout the entire sermon, I won't read all of them. And so I'm going to leave you to go back and read specifically Stephen's sermon. But we're going to look at the account of Stephen's life up until the point that he is brought up for trial. It's our scripture reading. It's Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. And if you will, please stand for the reading of God's word. Will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? Let's pray. (coughs) God. Thank you for Stephen. Thank you for his example of humble service, bold gospel proclamation, gracious suffering. God, allow us as we examine your words to be cut to the quick, God. In your mercy, God, soften our stiff necks, our hearts that are hard so that we might turn our faces towards Jesus. In his name, amen. You can be seated. Let's take a look at the life of Stephen. Let's examine who Stephen was. Uh, we, we get a lot of information about Stephen in chapter 6 of Acts, and we're going to look at them. Uh, first, we need to know that Stephen was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and that's found in, verse, or in chapter 6, verse 3. Uh, we'll talk about this more next week when Brad preaches, but deacons were selected, and one of the qualifications for the deacons would that, was that they be men full of faith and the Holy Spirit, uh, and this... Uh, This was Stephen. Uh, He had faith in and towards Jesus. Uh, He was full of the power of the Holy Spirit. And we know it because we saw uh, in verse 8 that he was doing great signs and wonders. Uh, He was full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. Also, he was full of grace and power. And it was by the grace and power and through the power of the Holy Spirit that he was able to do great signs and great wonders. Um, Not only that, when he is called up uh, and he is being questioned and people are trying to find fault in him, they can find none because the Bible says in verse 10 that he was full of wisdom and of the Holy Spirit, such that could not be matched by his his accusers. This was Stephen. We also know that Stephen was a devout student of the Word. Uh, The Bible does not use those terms for Stephen, but when you read his 53-verse sermon in which he summarizes all pretty much of Old Testament redemptive history, you begin to realize that this guy Stephen knew the Bible. At this point, we can stop and we can examine ourselves and and say, Would people describe us as having lives that are full of faith, uh, powered by the Holy Spirit? Are we gracious people, but yet bold, speaking with the power and the authority of God's Word and His Spirit? Are our actions wise? Are we devout students of the Word? Stephen was not just that, the Bible says, and and Luke lists Stephen first. In the list of the deacons, there's no hierarchy there. It just so happens that Stephen is listed first. But Stephen was a deacon. Not only was Stephen a deacon, Stephen was a Hellenist. If you don't know, Stephen uh, is not really a, a Hebrew name. It's a Greek name. His name was Stephanos. Uh, which actually means crown. It's a Greek word. He was a Greek-born Jew. He was a Hellenist Jew, which means he probably didn't speak Hebrew very well. Um, means as he quoted the scriptures, it may not have been the most elegant and pleasing thing to hear. He was not only a Hellenist, he was the first Christian martyr, as we heard earlier. And with those things, I I also want you to see that if we had picked somebody to be this person, this martyr, to have the first, last speech before martyrdom, we probably would not have picked the Hellenist and the deacon, the -the behind-the-scenes guy. Uh, We would have picked somebody like Peter, somebody who could proclaim boldly the word in his last moments, even though Stephen does. But if we had our choice, we probably would have done things differently. We would have picked somebody more prominent, uh, probably maybe a little bit less gracious, so that in their last breath they might yell freedom and spark a revolution. Um, But that's not what God did, because God's ways are not our ways. We see These things, and who Stephen was, God chose Stephen. That is who Stephen was. I don't want to spend too much more time on there because his sermon is amazing. And so we're going to move to that. Uh, Because something happens between verse 1 of chapter 7 and then... uh, Verse 54 of chapter 7, that causes the council to become enraged, to cover their ears and go, la, 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 and then stones. That is literally the picture the Bible gives. They gnash their teeth, they cover their ears, they start screaming, and they stone Stephen to death. Um, And at one point, he's performing signs and wonders. Uh, He's responding with wisdom uh, and power and the spirit. And at the next point, they're covering their ears and stoning him to death. Uh, And so we want to see what it was that caused that change. And so we're going to see what we can learn from Stephen's sermon. We're going to learn about what he says to them. Um, And before we get into Stephen's sermon, I want to remind us of the charges that were presented, the charges that were before Stephen. uh, And and they are found in chapter 6. Uh, This man never ceases to speak against this holy place and the law. That's verse 13. Um, The charges are that he is speaking blasphemies against the temple and that he is speaking blasphemies against Moses and the customs and the law. So the charge is that he is following this Jesus who did not value the temple or the law. And they bring these to Stephen. Uh, and, and before we even look at all of what Stephen says, I, I want to look at his conclusion. Uh, because in, in this case, I really do think it will be helpful as we go through the text, as we go through his sermon, and look at the different points, if we know where he's going to end up. And, and the conclusion is found in verse 51. Uh, and he says this, You stiff-necked people, Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And so Stephen is charged with not keeping the law, with being obstinate, with being uh, stiff-necked himself against the law. And his response uh, is, no, it's not me who's stiff-necked, it's you. You wicked people, do you not hear the Holy Spirit? Do you not see the law? You are the stiff-necked people. You deliver Jesus. You disobey the law. You deny God, which is probably not the best choice if you're wanting to live. But that's Stephen's response. And we're going to see how he says it. Uh, really, I think that there are four things that we can learn uh, from from Stephen and from his sermon. And we're going to look at the first three together. I don't think it's it's right to to look at them uh, in 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 their own on their own, and then to kind of draw a conclusion. We see all of these occurring together. The first thing that we see in Stephen's sermon is this: that God is patient. God is merciful, he's long-suffering, God is patient. But then right, right alongside it, we see that God's patience does have an end. There comes a time when God chooses no longer to be patient and pours out his judgment. And the third thing that we see is that God builds his kingdom, He brings about his kingdom through the suffering of his people. we're going to look at those first three things first, then we'll look at the fourth one by itself. Uh, this story that Stephen tells this sermon that he preaches is amazing because he literally does go through most of Israel's history he starts with father Abraham he talks about how God is patient with Abraham then he moves to Joseph then to Moses then to the law and David and Solomon and the temple he goes through and he tells this story which the old testament is the story of God's patience his Desire to show mercy, his bearing with his people. Uh, And he he starts this story uh, in chapter 7, verses 2 and 3 with Abraham. And he says that uh, Abraham was called by God. When he was in Mesopotamia. And God said, leave this place, leave your family, leave, leave your home, and go to the land which I have set before you. And so Abraham begins to go, and what we see in verse 4 uh, is that, that Abraham uh, only goes halfway. Abraham does not go fully to the land that God promised, but he stops halfway, and verse 4 says that then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans, and he lived in Haran, and after this, his father died. God removed him from there into this land which you, in which you are now living. And what we see is already, um, Abraham does not obey God. He does not go all the way to the land that's promised. He stops. He, makes up, uh, he sets up shop. Uh, his father dies, and God uh, gives him a kick in the rear, the Bible says. Uh, uh, that's a paraphrase. Um, God snatches him out of the land that he is in and puts him in the land of the promise. And we see even in in spite of Abraham's disobedience, God doesn't say, you know what, you quit, I'm done too. God does not abandon Abraham. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to get a new patriarch. He lifts Abraham up in his great mercy and in his great grace, and he places Abraham in the land where he called him. God is patient with Abraham. Then Stephen moves on to the story of Joseph. And you know, you know the story. Joseph, as a child, has dreams. And he tells his brothers, the patriarchs, of his dream. He says, I have a dream, and all of you are going to bow down to me. And the patriarchs say, no way, man. You're crazy. And, and it's not even just that light. It's not, eh, you're crazy. Uh, they are filled with hate for Joseph. And so, uh, in, in verse 9 we see that these stiff-necked patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. And in this moment, God has given Joseph dreams, and the patriarchs do not like the dreams. They hate Joseph. They sell Joseph into slavery, but God does not give up on them. God does not quit on them. God in his anger does not say, I'm done with you. I'm going to find 11 more brothers who can be patriarchs, who can be the the fathers of the tribes of Israel. What God does is he uses their sin uh, as the means by which he saves them because he's with Joseph and Joseph becomes second in command to Pharaoh, to the king of Egypt. And Joseph saves his brothers in spite of the fact that his brothers hated him, in spite of the fact that they rejected him and gave him over to the enemy, to the evil one, God uses Joseph to save them. Eventually what happens? They come, they bow down before Joseph, and they are saved. They find their salvation in the one that they rejected. And if you don't see it, this is typifying Jesus. The stone that the builders reject becomes the chief's cornerstone for their salvation. And in the midst of their faithlessness and their sin, God is still faithful and saves his people. And it happens again. I mean, this is the Old Testament, if you've read it. It's the cycle of God saving his people graciously, them not having faith, and God doing it again. Recreation, fall, redemption. Fall, redemption. Fall, redemption. This is the story of God's people, and Stephen continues it in verse 26 when he talks about Moses. Uh, And in verses 26 and 27, we see that Moses appeared to men as they were quarreling. quarreling. And Moses, who is uh, now uh, born a Hebrew, but also the adopted son of royalty, sees his kinsmen, his brothers, fighting, quarreling amongst each other, and... And when he sees them, he says, Man, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? He tries to reconcile them. And Moses, in speaking the words of the Lord and in trying to reconcile the brothers, is not met with joyful repentance. But rather, the man who is wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? He's met with contempt and scorn. And at this, Moses flees into exile in Midian. And God does not say of the Hebrews, this man who was stiff-necked against his words, I'm done with you. Stay in slavery for the rest of your lives. Die. Die. In slavery, instead, God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and says, "The same people that rejected you, you are going to go back and deliver them from the hands of their enemies." And Moses does. And God's spirit leads them through out of Egypt uh, to the to the uh, Red Sea, and He does it, guiding them with His spirit, uh, with a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. God frees his people. They cross through the Red Sea. They see Pharaoh and his army drowned. You'd think at this point, we've seen 10 plagues. We've seen a Passover. We've been led by a pillar of smoke and fire. We've seen a very large sea open up and walked on dry land and then saw it close on our enemies who are much stronger than us. At this point, you'd think maybe they get it. We like to think that of ourselves. Well, if I saw God part the Red Sea, surely I would never doubt him again. If I saw our budget reading negative and God provided money to us when we couldn't see where it was coming from, surely I would never... Then the next month comes and, and we forget God provides. story of Israel continues on and we see that as they wander through the desert Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the word of the Lord God gives them plans uh, to build a tabernacle so that he can be in the midst of them and when Moses goes up what we see uh, in verse 39 through 41 is this that our father's our stiff-necked fathers who had seen the work of God, who had heard the voice of the great prophet Moses, uh, they thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, back to slavery, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us as for This Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hand. And at this point, uh, we see God's patience come to an end. God no longer chooses to show some of these people mercy. And the Bible says that God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heavens, which is to worship, in verse 43, the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan. God gives them over to worshiping false gods, some of them. And in this point, we see God's patience is over. And it seems a lot like Romans 1 and 2 when Paul says because of the hardness of their hearts, because they traded the truth of God for a lie, for, because they traded what was natural for what was unnatural, God gave them over to the hardness, the hardness of their hearts. And what we see is that for a while sin is sin, but then sin becomes their punishment. And God hardens them. God's patience is done. They have been stiff necked for long enough. And for you, the message is the same that the Holy Spirit delivers through David and then through the author of the Hebrews. If you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness at Meribah, when God swore in his wrath that they would not enter his rest. God is slow to condemnation. He does not want to condemn, but rather to redeem. However, there will come a point where redemption is, is not an option, either because you have died or because God has hardened your heart. Be careful not to tread on the mercies of God. Do not say, I will sin today, I will live like I want to today, and then I'll do the classic deathbed repentance. uh, Because you may not have a deathbed. Or even worse, you may wake up one day and not sense a need for repentance. God is patient, but God's patience does have an end. What we see in all of this is that through the suffering of Joseph and the suffering of Moses, Uh, the hardships that Abraham endures in the death of his father and in traveling to a land that he's never known, Um, that God is building his people. He's building Israel. He's building his kingdom through the suffering of his people. And we're going to come back to that. Uh, We're going to look at that toward the end. Uh, But we need uh, to see the kicker. We need to see what it is that got Stephen Stone. Uh, because we, we don't have much time. And I, I think for us as a church, uh, we, this is what we need to hear. Uh, we, I need to hear this. Uh, this, is, this is the supreme message that Stephen preaches that they hear and that causes them to kill him. And, and we see it in verse 48. Because he then goes on to talk about David. And it says that David didn't build the temple, but that Solomon ended up building the temple uh, and built a house for God. And then in verse 48, speaking of the temple, which if you remember was one of the charges that was brought against Stephen, that he was blaspheming the temple. Stephen says, yet the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by hands. And at this point, when you go back and read the sermon, which all of you will, uh, hopefully, there will be this connection. I've heard this before. In fact, I heard it when he was speaking uh, of the people in Moses uh, in verse in verse forty one. And God sa- and, and, and says in verse forty one, they made calf uh, calf in their own in those days and sacrificed to that idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hand. And then Stephen connects that to the temple and says, God does not dwell in places built with human hands. Heaven is his throne. Heaven is my throne, says the Lord. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? And we begin to see this idea of uh, we begin to see this problem. The problem is that, th- that the, the Pharisees, the council, those who are judging Stephen are just like those who were wandering in the wilderness. They did not want to worship God, but rather they wanted to delight themselves in the work of their own hand. And that does not work because God and God alone is to be exalted. these people that Stephen was speaking to, what began to happen is they began to turn away from God and turn towards themselves. And they found their fulfillment, their joy, their meaning, their purpose, their significance, and what they could make with their hands. They wanted the kind of God and the kind of worship that would allow them to demonstrate their own power, their own virtues, their own morality, their own zeal for righteousness. We're not talking about secularism or postmodernism, or relativism or pagan worship. We're talking about radically self-centered worship in the name of God for their own glory. And for them, the temple and the customs and the law and Moses, the things that they were accusing Stephen of, uh, for these people, they had become symbols of what they could achieve. The temple was supposed to be a meeting place where they could meet God and where others could meet God. The tabernacle was supposed to be a tent of meeting in the wilderness where in the wilderness God's people could meet him and instead it became a a place where they just worshipped the work of their own hands and in that the temple and the law, their keeping of it, became a golden calf. And they stopped worshipping God And they started worshiping Moloch and Refin and ultimately themselves. This is the message to us who live in the South, in America, in the church culture, who are believers. We need to be careful not to allow our accomplishments, our church, the ministries we run, our families, our work, our lives. We need to be careful not to let them become a testimony of the works of our hands. Because all of these things are meant to be a tabernacle in the wilderness, a temple, a place where people can meet most holy God and worship him but they very quickly can become a temple and a testament and a monument to ourselves. Uh, this struck me uh, very harshly this week. And I had to beg God on multiple occasions not to let my preaching, my sermon, uh, be a testament to my abilities to speak or To divide the word not a testament to the work of my hand but rather that God would make this sermon this, this text this study of Stephen a tent of meeting where I might and where you might meet God and we are all tempted in areas of our lives to make the things that God has gifted us with temples to ourselves so that we can worship ourselves and not God. And God and God alone is to be exalted and God and God alone will be exalted. (laughs) End of story. God comes in and he wipes out everything that steals glory and exaltation and worship from him. That's how the story ends. So, as you hear his words, do not be stiff necked. But rather, like Stephen, who was full of faith and, and, and the Holy Spirit, turn your face to Jesus, turn your hearts to Jesus. Let this church, let your home groups, let your family, let your lives be a temple where God is worshipped. The Pharisees, the council, the, they heard what Stephen was saying. Because of it, they killed him. Just like every prophet, basically, in the Old Testament was killed. Just like they killed Jesus. Just like they killed the martyrs after Stephen. And so there are some things that we can learn from Stephen's death. And the first is this. The gospel offends. There is no way around it it offends. We are by nature, sin nature, hopelessly sinful and selfish people who do not want to worship God, but want to worship ourselves. And so we will create God's that we can manage, and that we can contain so that we can worship ourselves. And when you tell people, whether they're Darwinists or whether they're cultural Christians, that they need to stop worshiping themselves and worship God, it will offend them. It's just the reality of it. Uh, Brad said a few weeks ago that if you are preaching a gospel that does not offend, uh, then you're not preaching the gospel of Jesus. That is true. The second thing that we learn from Stephen's death is that, as we talked about before, God brings his kingdom through the suffering of his people. Because, as we read earlier, uh, when they begin to stone Stephen, there's a young man sitting in the midst of them, holding their clothes, approving of their work. Uh, and his name was Saul. And God uses the martyrdom of Stephen. In Saul's life. He begins in Saul this great anger and wrath against the word of God. Martyring and persecuting Christians unlike any other. Uh, And it ends with Saul confronted by Jesus. Remembering the testimony, as it were, of Stephen's death. Being converted. And in fact, the book of Acts ends with Saul in Rome preaching the gospel. And this deacon who could hardly speak the native language of the people. His death serves the kingdom immeasurably. God brings his kingdom through the suffering of his people. It may not always be martyrdom. It may not always be torture, imprisonment, but make no mistake. J.I. Packer said that God does not use a man whom he has not first broken. And that breaking can feel like suffering. It may be physical suffering. But if God is going to use you, he is going to break you and know that it brings about his kingdom, his glory, and your good. Turn to Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses of righteous and faithful men and women who believed your word, who proclaimed the good news of Jesus, who were imprisoned, who were tortured, who were killed, who stood strong in the face of adversity, God. And may we, Turn our hearts towards you. We will not suffer if our lives and our work are for the glory of what we have done with our own hands. We will only suffer if we are to be temples, tents in the wilderness where the lost can meet you and sing your greatness and your glory. Father, help us to proclaim the great mercy and great patience, which does have an end, and the hope that we have in our Messiah, Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.